back in April of 2016, we had a conference for our volunteers called Engage and Equip Live. So here's the content from the first day of that conference. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Engage and Equip Live. And um, this is the, v the version of our volunteer event, annual volunteer event, where instead of thanking you, we engage and equip you live. And um, I, I, wanna, I just want to start um, a little different than I normally do by just telling you that I think one of the things I want to talk about this weekend a little bit is that um, High Point Church is not a significant thing. Okay, neither is my pastoral leadership or the things that we'll accomplish through this organization. Um, the the thing the things that are prof that profoundly matter and the reason why there is a high point church is because of the things that are happening in every one of your lives every day, right? And as I think about that, I you know I think about all of you that I have the privilege of knowing a little bit and how in really specific and kind of ordinary ways I see the power of God changing you and changing things through through you right and and um you know I was I was just thinking before as I was watching people walk in how um most of the fun of ministry is watching what happens you know what I mean I was, I was watching um, Shane and Devin walk in wherever the heck they are and thinking, uh, you know, yeah, like two, two lovebirds from two families that gave them a Christian heritage personally, but who've taken it, moved to a whole other city, created a family and love affair with each other, shown people what ordinary life. With, and then I thought, and th but they, they've got nothing on, on these two. You'd be lucky if you be like, can be like them in 160 years. And uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Only 159. Yeah, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of the families that have new kids and people trying new things and people like Gwen being like, yeah, I can lead the children's ministry and really giving herself to that. And, um, you know, Tim playing bass and then, you know, dealing with the silent frustration of having your wife work at the church and carry a thousand stresses of, of trivial things that, in, you know, in a communications department and um, you know, as I look around every single one of you, there's something to be said. There's some like, there's some way in which in a fairly simple thing that most people would overlook, um, something very profound is happening. Something is fundamentally different in the way you engage with your life and everybody in it because of Jesus, because he is actually real. And just at the moment when you're kind of like, is this, is anything really happening here? Like, um, I've been sick for like a number of days now. I, you know, I come home, I'm jet lagged. The lower half of me isn't working properly because of travel. And then I get the like 10 day cold my kids have had. And it's just been like grueling. And yeah, when I was in India, I was with all these brothers and sisters who love Jesus. And um, in the third conference I was in, we, they had, we had a camera in the main room, which was a camera down in the lobby. So if the BJP, the sort of Hindu extremist group that's based in Nagpur, came in to like hurt people, we would have like 30 seconds of notice before they burst into the room. I think they had like an escape plan to dangle me off of something. Um, and so, those, I mean, those people were really dear to me. That was a really amazing group of people that gathered knowing that that could happen just because they wanted to learn how to preach the gospel better. Um, but those people, they're, they're not actually my people. 
You know what I mean? They're not my family. They're not the flock I'm a part of in the most specific day in and day out sense. And I just want you guys to know that um, the... Uh, did you ever watch the Hatfields and the McCoys, that like miniseries of like Kevin Costner and the whatever? You probably didn't. Anyway. They had this really long feud, right? These two families and they're just killing each other like crazy, right? And there's this one point where the guy who's like the cussed old irreligious guy like finally gets baptized at the end of the movie and like comes to Christ. And he writes this letter about that the feud is over and he says, the tiger spirit has gone out of me. And they're somewhere along the line, and I, I don't know, I feel like I'm too young to be an old man, but in some ways I'm an old man. The, the tiger spirit of like winning at church has kind of gone out of me. I'm just tired of the arms race. I don't really care anymore. Not that I don't care about Jesus or people coming to Jesus. It has nothing to do with that. I'm just sick and tired of the whole like how we're going to create the next iteration of church 7.16.0 you know what I mean? And like, we're going to be on the treadmill a little faster than the last guy, and it's going to be more organic and cool or whatever. And I'm just, I'm just kind of tired of it. And so really the theme of today and tomorrow is you're doing plenty and you're doing fine. So, you know what I mean? Like when Jesus shows up, when the disciples are in one of their most tense moments, he says, peace be with you. And um, in some ways, that's really, I mean, that's really all I care to, care to say. I mean, I'm going to say more like I always do. Um, <laughs> but I, I want you to know that um, my goal for the next few minutes now and then tomorrow um, in the time I speak outside the breakout sessions is my goal is not to tell you how we're going to get more out of you. Uh, it's not going to be about how you're going to make more sacrifices so that High Point Church can be greater so that I can maybe go speak at conferences and make a bunch of money at some point in my life. Um, that, that's not the gig. Um, you guys are amazing. You're all so different, and yet I could go through this room and go through probably almost all of you, and I could give some observation about how I can see the grace of God in you. And some of you know that I don't even know your name, and you're like, that's bull. But it's, it's not actually, I'm a fairly observant person, um, like that old Monty Python sketch. I'm very observant. Um, and there, I don't know some of your names. And yet, if we went through this room, I could tell you something I've seen about you that I know is the grace of God working in you. And um, all I want to see is that in very ordinary, but straightforward and spiritful ways, increasingly, these things just keep growing the grapes of God. So I'm supposed to do this talk on, like, our mission and, like, our mission state, right? It's a little dark in here to get excited, right? Um, and, uh, but you, you know our mission, and, you know, we've plagiarized it from the Bible. Like, Jesus was pretty direct in this. He's like, listen, you're going to go and make disciples of all nations, right? That's pretty straightforward. And so we just kind of took that and, like, made it cool, right? So it's, we make disciples through gospel connection, growth, and service. And... So what I want to do in the next couple of talks is look at a couple of misconceptions that I think are ways in which we have s sort of subtle misunderstandings theologically about what Jesus really wants us to do and believe. And be we believe these, these misconceptions, and they actually squeeze us personally and emotionally and psychologically in terms of our energy and our hopes. And we just feel squeezed by them. And one of them is that the mission of the church is the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Now, that may not sound, that may sound kind of not like a misconception, but here's what I mean by that. 
The mission of the church is not both the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. A lot of churches now, a lot of evangelical churches, you'll see them like loving God with our heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, and making disciples of all nations. And that's kind of like their, it's kind of their flagship. I don't agree with that. Um, and here's why. Um, Jesus gave a commission to the church, and he said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And if you put together Matthew 28, 19, with the other commissions that Jesus gives, like at the end of Luke and beginning of Acts and other places, there's basically three parts. One, there's supposed to be a going, right? We're supposed to proactively go to other people, not wait for them to come to us. There's a proactivity to it. There's witnessing. You will be my witnesses, right? Um, in both Luke and in Acts and other places, there's a sense of like, you're going you're gonna to actually testify and talk about Jesus crucified and risen. And then the whole books of, book of Acts is the story of Christians doing so, right? And then it, back to the Great Commission, you'll baptize them. That is, you will initiate and receive the people who come to Jesus. And you will teach them to obey everything I commanded. That is, you will draw them into a process of disciple-making formation. And you won't pick and choose what Jesus commanded, but you'll really teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded, okay? Now, the great commandment is the whole, um, the guy comes to Jesus and says, how do I obey the law, or what's the sum of the law? And he says, to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the reason why this gets a little confusing, I think, for churches is because that sounds really important, right? Like, Jesus sums up the, all of God's commands in, like, one little summary. I mean, that sounds like a really great flagship statement for a church, right? Like, the, 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 the problem with that, though, is, is that in Luke's gospel, for example, when he tells that, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And w one of the, the things that sometimes we forget about um, the Gospels is, is that there's very, very little talk of organized worship of any kind within religious institutions. Jesus ends up talking about the kingdom of God, and then he speaks directly into the lives of people, right? So people just come from everywhere doing all kinds of different things, and he just teaches them about the kingdom of God, and there isn't an intermediary institution, religious institution he's doing it through. He's just saying, look, this is what life is like. So if you love God and you love your neighbor, imagine this happening, right? You're walking down the road to Jericho and it's this kind of like, it is this kind of desert road with all these turns and it. it's really easy to beat somebody up and some guy gets beat up and, you know, somebody takes care of him and who was a neighbor to the man? Well, of course, the, the good Samaritan, the one who did it, right? That is a picture of a person who is actually a Christian, it's not a picture of a church, and it's not a commission for the church. It is simply a straightforward statement for what a no-kidding, actual, converted human being acts like, and is like, and believes. A person who's actually a Christian, loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they love their neighbors as themselves. And as they walk through life, they will encounter proximate neighbors, and they will have neighbors around where they live, and they, there are people who will assert themselves through life as their neighbors, and they will love them as themselves. And those people are Christians. Okay? But that is not a commission to the church. Now, the, the reason why this is important is that if you believe that both of those are essentially commissions to, the, to what the local church is supposed to do, it really creates the sense that, like, you believe that you and the church together have three mandates— that one, there's a worship mandate that we're to get together and love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength together, right? Secondly, there's a discipleship mandate where to go to all nations and make disciples of all nations. And there's a humanitarian mandate that we need to care for and love our neighbors as ourselves. And so people talk about how are we as the church going to programmatically have a humanitarian kind of outreach? How are we going to help the poor? How are we going to blah, blah, blah? 
as though that is a fundamental commission of the church. It isn't actually a fundamental commission of the church. Nor is the worship mandate. Now, you can see, based on the worship mandate, that I'm not going to say, therefore, churches shouldn't worship. The distinction I'm making is not what's legitimate for Christians to choose to do together. The issue is, what is the thing Jesus actually explicitly said was our job? That's the, that's the first question we shouldn't let get away from us. Now, whatever else we're going to do while we're doing that job, we can do. And the great commandment, loving God and loving your neighbor, is a great place to start. But it's not the commission of the church. The institution of an organized church where the organic body of Christ organizes together under elders, where they worship, um, celebrate the ordinances, do church discipline, baptize new believers, celebrate the Lord's Supper, where this happens in the local church, that local church has a commission, and that commission is to make disciples of Jesus. Those disciples will then go out everywhere they go, every place they put their foot, and they will love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they will love their neighbor as themselves. And to programmatically make that central to the church's life is to actually greatly diminish what Jesus is attempting to accomplish. Because the last thing he's particularly interested in is that we would love God and love our neighbor primarily through the organized church and the institutionalizational programmatic methods that we will use, as opposed to all of us being immediately scattered when we say, the Lord bless you and keep you, and that 600 people in the name of Christ walk out loving God with all their heart and going into every place they go, every vocation, every avocation, into their families and into their neighborhoods, loving God and loving their neighbors as themselves. So if you understand that, it does not diminish what we're producing when we make disciples. But what it does do is clarify what the local church is here to do. And if we realize that, we'll realize that we have only one commission— but if we faithfully live out that commission, we will fulfill all three needs. And what I mean by that is this, is that the commission is a job. It's something we have to He says, go and make disciples. The great commandment is essentially a product. What would it look like if somebody believed and embodied the whole law? And Jesus says, here's what it would look like. It would look like a person who loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves their neighbor as themselves. You would have a person who in faith would be like that. That is, you have an outcome or an, or an object. Once you see that, then there doesn't have to be any kind of dichotomy between the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. The commission is the command to make the factory and plant the garden. The great commandment is the fruit picked. It is the result. It's, it's what we're aiming for. And when we recognize that, then it's very simple to say, okay, if we do the commission right, we're going to get the commandment stuff. And we're going to get it. We're going to get more than we ever dreamed. So essentially all we're doing is we're taking these things that are part of the commission— we're just simplifying them into some kind of ministry model, all under the gospel, so that when we produce disciples, those disciples are exactly—they they embody exactly what we're commissioned to do. Do you see that? We're commissioned to worship, to go to others, to baptize, right? To have our identity in Christ, to teach and to learn and to serve and obey. That's our commission. What we end up producing is people who 
do those same exact five things. Does that make sense? We don't have to we don't have to get confused and overly complicate things. It's really easy to order this out and just do what Jesus told us to do and not get distracted. Now, the whole thing only works, though, if there's absolute clarity on the gospel, the message about Jesus. And what that means is that when we try to help people connect, grow, and serve so that they can become Jesus' disciples, the gospel— has to be unconfused and uncontaminated. What I mean by, by that is this. Whenever human beings believe something has to get better, right? We all need to come together and things have to get better. Usually there's two human heart impulses, right? One is we can get everybody back together and we can all be freer if we just lower the standards. We're just being too hard on everybody. And if we lower the standards and everybody's just kind of free to be themselves, then we're all going to be happier, right? That's kind of like what we did in the 60s, Right? Like, we're all in pain because we're all uptight, and let's just lower the standards and be ourselves. And that really worked wonderfully, didn't it? And then the other human impulse, which is just as human, is if we really want things to get better, we really need to tighten things up. We really need to have higher standards. We need to be super clear. We need to demand certain outputs from people. Um, and you, you could call that sort of the late Puritan approach. Now, the Puritans weren't always like that, but in the third or fourth generation of American Puritans, there was a real legalism going on. That's why there had to be a great awakening among them. And that's just another way of messing the gospel up. So the gospel can be confused by kind of therapeutic. Antinomianism means uh, apart from the law. I don't have to do, I don't have to, you can't tell me what to do, right? <coughs> Libertinism, they're all, those are all names for like, I can do what I want. God is there to make my life good and to make me happy and to make sure I'm healthy, wealthy, and wise, but not so much wise right? Or there's the religious approach of to become moralistic or legalistic or religious in the negative sense of that term, and to like be like, if, you, if you're good enough, I'm following God's rules, and so he's going to make my life good. He's going to bless me. He's going to make sure I'm happy, because I'm doing what I, he wants me to do, so he's now obligated to give me what I want him to do, right? And in American churches, we are constantly flopping back and forth between these, sometimes believing and teaching them both at the same time, in ways that are enormously confusing. Instead of saying, A, God doesn't owe you anything. You are responsible to live a beautiful, moral, and good life because it is good, moral, and beautiful. It is intrinsically worthwhile in and of itself, and its beauty and goodness intrinsically obligates you to it. And if you don't do it, you're blameworthy. God wouldn't even have to exist for that to be true, but he does uphold it, and it is true. And also, you've totally failed. We all have. We're pretty terrible at it. And it's only through the grace of God in Christ, through his forgiveness and empowerment and remaking of his image in us, that we can be rehabilitated and remade and regenerated and empowered by the Holy Spirit to begin to walk like Jesus in incredible humility and in a powerful sense of courage. So we can be completely humble and not self-righteous, and yet we can be morally serious and not hypocritical. And that has to be super clear. We can do all the connect, growing, and serving that we want to, and we're really just like Jesus said in Matthew 23. You remember this in Matthew 23 where he talks to the Pharisees and he says, you know, you are ready to move heaven and earth. You will get on boats and sail to the farthest places of the ocean. That sounds like a good missionary, right? You'll get on a boat, sail to the farthest places of the ocean to make one disciple, right? And then what does he say is the result of it? so that you can make him twice the son of hell that you are, right? Be careful what you export, right? 
So, the, so one of the things that, that um, is, is really, really, really important, we constantly have to be on guard for falling into a therapeutic gospel or a moralistic gospel. The minute that is wrong, nothing else we do matters, and whatever we're making disciples of, it's not Jesus anymore. Right? And who wants to give their life for that? Not me. Probably not you. Right? Now, um, when we recognize that, what that means is this, is that we're not doing two separate things, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, and we don't have three mandates. The Great Commission is a means to the end of the Great Commandment in, in each of us, and that comes about by all of us committing to one commission, that is to make disciples. Once we realize that, what, what we're doing at church, what we decide to make a program here at church, gets real simple. It gets real simple. Because does that, now does that mean we can't do anything humanitarian? No, it doesn't mean that. What it means is that if we're trying to help everybody love God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, and love their neighbor as themselves, we might make programmatically just an example of what it would look like to get out there and love your neighbor. But the more we make it programmatic, the less we will accomplish in helping people love their neighbor. Because probably every single one of us should be doing literally a different thing to love our neighbors. Because we all have different neighbors that all have different needs at different moments, at different times, in different ways. The idea that I can create a program that will be sufficient for you to love your neighbor is, is to believe in a kind of institutionalism that doesn't seem to fit the organic nature of disciples moving out and loving their neighbor as themselves that the Bible is full of. Right? Now, that doesn't mean institutions are bad. It just means institutions are only good at a few things. And we shouldn't try to use them for things that they're not good at. Does that make sense? And so they're really good at setting examples. Right? But then you've got to step back and let people do things. Okay, the second misconception is this. That when we connect, grow, and serve, it is my job to either passively get connected, grown, and served by others. So it's your job to help me connect, grow, and serve. Or, just as wrong, the opposite, I am here to help other people connect, grow, and serve. And the, answer, the issue with that is, it, you have to see ministry as reflexive. Right? So the English majors are like, okay, you're going to do this wrong. I know. Um, the reflexive verbs are when the subject is also the object. So I wash myself would be a reflexive use of the word, the verb to wash. It is that something is going out and coming back. And specifically reflexive, I'm doing it to myself, right? And so if we looked at that in relationship to the ministry, we would say this. You could look at an active view of making disciples. I'm making a disciple, right? And what I'm saying is, is that if you look at it that way, you actually are a little wrong. Like, God bless you. Love that you're serving. Please keep doing it. Just don't look at it like that. It can't be just that, right? And then there are some people that come to High Point Church that are like, I'm being made into a disciple. People are helping me connect, grow, and serve. That's really not that helpful either. The way we should see things functioning is that there's this inner relationship where we're being connected with and we're connecting. We're connecting with others. And so, like, you could, the main person in this picture is this person right here, obviously, right? So, one, this person is engaging in, like, the spiritual disciplines and believing in Jesus. And so he is making a disciple with himself, right? We're all supposed to be disciple-making with ourselves, right? And then in addition to that, he's being made a disciple by this guy— and by this person, 
right? Size is age. So there's like an older person, right, ministering to him, and there's this person about the same age ministering to him, and then he's ministering to that person, and this person's ministering to that person. So this person's ministering to this person directly and through this person, and then this person's ministering to these kids, and he's also talking with people outside of the church. But there's this inner relationship between those two. Now, the re- here's the reason that's important is that it's only when intentionally there is this exchange of of giving here and receiving here, pouring out and opening up, that there is a closeness enough of the human relationships that you can get what what, um, the sexy word for is transformational relationships, where the relationship is actually close enough between two people that there is an interchange of real personhood and experience of being that you really feel like you see the other person for who they really are and you're experiencing between you something that isn't just a transaction of an institution or an event of a ministry, but it's actually love that's transitioning back and forth between real people, right? The old school word for this is loving others, right? And this is another reason why um, we have to be really careful about making programmatic and institutionalizing too much of what we do. Because it, it, un, it unhelpfully antiseptics the human relationships, the, the, shared, the shared expectations, the shared acceptance, the shared encouragement, the human factor that is actually in some ways the majority of what actually affects people. And so what happens when churches get larger is they say, there's all this chaos. We need to organize this. And so what they do is they take things that have happened organically up until that point, and they create structures and functions in order for them to work well still. But one of the, thing, but one of the reasons why oftentimes churches like this, people start leaving, right? So you get this huge overturn where a lot of people leave, and they go, that church was just too big for me. It wasn't because 170 people had agoraphobia is because they actually felt something change and they didn't really know what it was or why it was. But, but I can tell you what it was. When the church did the 800 transition, it began to institutionalize and systematize things that weren't systematized before. And although that can be helpful in certain ways, it fundamentally changes the human relationship of the church with itself. And people start feeling like they're going to like a business or they're like it loses something of it's like, I'm going to see Bob and Sarah and I are going to talk about model airplanes. And it turns into this like well-honed machine, which really can accomplish a lot of things. But it also can accomplish a certain kind of spiritual like deadness too. That, that doesn't really inspire anyone. And, and it can really produce that sort of feeling where um, the people who come want more goods and services. They want better religious goods and services. And the people who are serving are up to stinking here with it. And you're still just trying to limp along. And so you, you blame your pastor who's not talented enough, who can't make this work. Like this is, I mean, it just happens. I'm not saying it's happening here. Just have, I've seen this happen in church after church after church. Now, there's a couple things to consider, and this is going to be the, the nerdy part of this. I don't know if you can bring the house lights up, Dale, but I think it might be helpful for people. It is 744. Um, 
one of the things that people really struggle with is if they're going to like or like organically i know that's kind of like a hackneyed overused cliched term but if they're gonna just say okay wait if you're it's like the church, if it institutionalizes the humanitarian call of, of love, it's almost safer because it limits the infinity responsibility that you can feel if you're supposed to love your neighbor, right? So like if, if as a church, I say, okay, here's what we're going to do, right? We're rolling out the new service thing. We literally are rolling out a new service thing in a few weeks, right? Um, so we're already working with Hope in a Future, right? We're already working with CareNet. Right? We're gonna, we're gonna have, we're gonna have a reading buddy program at Orchard Ridge Middle School, right? And we're gonna do some things with Nehemiah, um, in the Ally Drive area, right? And these are fairly simple things, right? So, what I've just done for you is this. You're not responsible to love the whole world, okay? I've just narrowed down for you, through this institution, what you're really responsible for. You need to volunteer periodically in one of these four things. And if you do, then you're loving your neighbor as yourself, because love moves through institutions, as we all know in the nation states, right? And so therefore, you're good, right? Which is crazy. Of course, that's crazy, right? And part of the reason for this is we just don't understand things that Christians have already thought through multiple centuries before. Um, and so one is, so there are a few considerations of moral, moral theology that I think are, might be helpful for us in understanding this. One is um, what has been referred to as the philosophy of concentric circles of responsibility and the subsidiary principle, and that's this. You are not equally as responsible for the people who live right next door to you and people who are across the city and people who are in Oconomowoc and people who are in Memphis and people who are in downtown Paris, in the refugee sections, and in sub-Saharan Africa, and, 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 and. You are not infinitely responsible to every person whose life isn't perfect and the entire world at the same way at the same time. That just isn't the case. You are decreasingly responsible in concentric circles as you move out from your most immediate responsibilities and roles outward. Now, that doesn't mean you aren't responsible at all for anybody outside your house or your neighborhood. It doesn't mean that. It just means there is a—we experience our relationship to the world in, with finitude in a way God doesn't. And if, if you don't recognize that in your understanding of your responsibility to others, you will have a Messiah complex. You will try to do too much. You will burn yourself out and you will hate everyone because nobody else will be doing enough. You'll be so mad that nobody else wants to change the world. And really the problem is you're an idolater. You don't understand human finitude and you don't understand the basic realities of moral theology as taught in the Bible. Okay, so you are primarily responsible for your family first. If you, if you aren't in a nuclear family, then you're responsible for your closest covenantal, covenantal friendships. You should, if you are not married, you should have covenantal friendships with a few other people. People who, when they're in trouble, they can call you. In addition to that, there are other people that are going to be living in a closer proximity to you, that you have life-to-life -life access with. These people are, your, are called your neighbors, okay? Jesus never told you to love humanity. All of the revolutionary people who killed millions in the 20th century said, I love humanity, and then they killed millions of humans. Chesterton once said, never trust somebody who says they love humanity, but never trust anybody who doesn't love their neighbor. Your neighbor is a concrete human being standing in front of you whom you must love.
Humanity is an abstraction that you can use to kill your neighbor or ignore him. Does that make sense? That does not mean that we don't care about people in the, in the outgoing concentric circles. We do. But what it means is, is that it's okay to realize that if you have three children, that they are your main neighbors at this moment, and they are the people you are most directly responsible for. And if you can't get out to the food pantry every week to volunteer, that does not mean you do not love humans or your neighbor, or you don't love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Um, Secondly is the principle—so, and the subsidiary principle is simply the principle that all things should be handled at the most local and closest possible level for two reasons. One, because it tends to happen better morally that way, but two, it increases the human factor, right? It increases the human factor. And the human factor sometimes is half or more of the transformational reality of helping people. Now, secondly is the principle of spheres. Um, Sometimes people feel as though the, certain institutions are, like, over everything. So, like, the, the local church. Some people feel like the local church is supposed to be sort of, like, over everything religious that happens in the whole society or everything religious that happens in their life. That's not true. Jesus Im, is implied and present everywhere. And the local church is not in charge of everything. So when you go to work— Jesus is present, and I am not in charge of your boss. The local church has a sphere as an institution, and that sphere is, it is the carrying arc of the message of the gospel of Jesus given and offered to all peoples. And it is the place in which the scattered church gathers to be built into disciples, to worship God, share in the ordinances, grow in understanding all that Jesus has taught us to obey, and to engage in church discipline. That's what the local church is. It is not more than that. It is not supposed to be a full-service second government. Right? Similarly, the, the reformers saw that the church had a sphere and the government had a sphere. And the government had a big and important sphere, and it was supposed to work in that sphere. And a lot of the whole church-state fights the Reformers didn't even believe in. Luther would have said, there should never be a fight between the church and the state, so long as the state knows what the state is supposed to do, and the church knows what the church is supposed to do, and they, neither of them get messiah complexes. And thirdly, um, is gospel equality and subsidiary passions, and that's this. We should all be able to believe in the gospel. And then that the gospel in us is going to connect with a secondary or subsidiary passion that we have, something that we are uniquely, or more than the person sitting right next to us, connected with the worth and beauty of something else. And so the gospel is going to burn like a fuel as we move towards that subsidiary passion to see redemption happen through it. So for some people, it's going to be missions, right? You believe in Jesus. You love Jesus. Jesus cares about, the, about all nations. And so like, it just, missions just burns in you, right? For somebody else, that's worship. Drawing people together, leading them, and worshiping and valuing God for who he is. For some people, it is no kidding administration. No kidding. 
God bless these people, right? Like, they're, they're like, Jesus burns in their heart, and they just want things ordered enough so there isn't chaos, and that people can accomplish things for Jesus, right? For other people, it's just mercy. They, they just, they are just prowling around and sniffing around for hurting people, just so that they can do something to make them feel better, even if they can't do anything about the state that they're in. For other people, it's teaching. They want to make Christ known. For other people, it's evangelism. They just want to find somebody who doesn't already believe in Jesus and find a way to knock down the walls and to draw them in. And for every one of us in this room, it'll be a little bit different because of your experiences, because of your understanding of the world, because of what you think is most needed, because of what gifting you have, because of a lot of different things. And a healthy church is a church where one person can love, be so driven for prayer, another person can be so driven for worship, another for discipleship, another person for evangelism, another person for some humanitarian end, another person for education, another, people for all kinds of different things, and they don't have to backbite each other and judge each other and have huge budgetary fights and split into 17 different churches where one church really cares about worship and another church really cares about understanding the Bible and another church really cares about um, engaging in social justice. But all these Christians can come together, be be totally with each other. Not everything is institutionalized, so we don't have to fight over whose ministry gets to be better. But Christians re release themselves into a thousand different things. And because the thing isn't institutionalized through the church, they actually do it out in the community. And so things that weren't designed to be evangelistic are evangelistic. Things that weren't designed to be worshipful are worshipful. And the people who are into worship see people coming to worship because of the people who did the humanitarian thing. And for some people, it's just they go start a business so that the seven people who work for them can feed their families and do good work the best hours of their days. And the level of self-righteousness swishing around in the church because of some intrinsic spiritual hierarchy of how who's supposed to be up and who's supposed to be down can literally dissipate when we really understand that God works through the subsidiary passions of people, but still through the white-hot fuel of the gospel. And it, that is one of the reasons why it is not wise to institutionalize and ministryize every good thing that Christians might do through the local church. Not least because I'm not qualified to lead any of those things, and when the church often tries to do them through the local church, we do a terrible job, and we end up creating damage in the community because we actually step into the sphere of something else. And we create a spheres issue where the church all of a sudden says, I'm the intrinsic government here, when we're not. And then we have less of a leg to stand on when the government gets out of its sphere and steps into ours of the local church. We have less ground to stand on to say, no, 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 no. You are not over everything. You are over your spheres, and this is our sphere, and you can't tell us what to do. And then last, lastly, the, the way that— and you'd be like, wait a second, we lived like that— there would be like a circle and the gospel wouldn't get out because as our concentric circles laid out, we just would have less and less effect. And there would be some places where the gospel was thriving and then other places where nothing was happening. And, and that is precisely why the Great Commission carries with it a missionary, cross-cultural, implicit and explicit mandate that we are to go to all nations. Because church planting 
in global missions in particular is the seed corn of the gospel that starts new movements that can grow up in new series of concentric circles all over the world and in all places. And it's one of the reasons why global missions, both its funding, its raising up of missionaries, its long-term support, has to be absolutely integral to a local church that knows what it's doing in fulfilling the Great Commission and making disciples. Does that make sense? Is any of that helpful, or was that just like moral theology that you don't care about? I don't, I'm not really sure. It, it's helpful for me, sorry. Okay, let me skip through some of these. Okay, now we're going to talk about the third misconception tomorrow, and in some ways it's the most important. I'm going to spend a half an hour on it tomorrow. And that is that in order to make disciples, I have to fit a lot of commitment to church into a very full life, Right? And that's all I'm going to talk about for half an hour tomorrow. But in a minute here, we're going to go to Micah A and B and have some discussion time. There's going to be some snacks. There's going to be eight seats at a table, and each table will have a discussion later. So just pick a table, sit down, and discuss what we talked about tonight. But there's a couple things I want. I just want to try to help people see, and that's this. Our mission, hopefully you know it, is to make disciples through gospel connection, growth, and service. And that we have one commission, not three. Jesus made a very specific and a very simple commission to make disciples. And if we make disciples, we will do all the other things. Right? So Peter said, don't forget the poor, right? And Paul's like, well, of course not. How could any church that's making disciples end up practically not caring about its poor people? It will be full of disciples that are looking for neighbors to love as themselves, and they are going to bump into the poor people, and they are going to love them. And if we have to institutionalize something to make sure these things connect, then we will, right? But secondly, the mission, the mission is reflexive. Some of you here know that it's frustrating for all of us, that there are people who come to High Point, and they expect Connect, Grow, Serve to function with them entirely passively. They're going to come here. They're going to look for us to give them and sell them religious goods and services. They're going to expect us to help them connect, help them grow, and help them serve. And we're going to do that. We are going to do that. And then we're going to constantly tell them that part of serving is that they learn how to serve and that they help others connect, grow, and serve. But there are some of you that really are in, are in um, give gear all the time. You're in active gear all the time. And you really aren't, you really don't see High Point as a place where people are helping you connect with God and with others. And people are helping you grow. And people are helping you serve. And they're serving you. And you can just relax sometimes and let them serve you. And sometimes you can just relax and not do anything but just enjoy the people you're connecting with and growing with and serving with. And we don't have to hit any goals, friends. There's no growth goals we have to hit. There's no budget we have to hit, okay? None of that stuff is prescriptive for the gospel. Our job is to make disciples. If we do that, people are going to give. If we do that, we're going to have some ministries. If we do that, we'll have an effect on the poor. If we do that, it will affect the economy. If we do that, people, some people will get back to work, and some people will go back to school, and people will mentor one another, and some people will get married, and some people will have children, and some people will babysit, and some people who, dep who are depressed will be invited to move into apartments with three other people who want to love them, and all that stuff can happen. 
if we are unconfused that we have one commission to make disciples, and if we are unconfused about how we interact with that mission, that we give and we receive, that it is reflexive, that it goes out and it comes in, and that you do not have to win. We do not have to win. We, we don't have to... There is, there is nothing that has to happen so that you and I can hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. If there is anything in your heart that sits there stubbornly when I say, Jesus says, peace be with you. If there is anything that doesn't allow that to flow into you and say, you know, you're right. Jesus said, peace be with you. That is not a virtue. Whatever sits there is not a virtue. And if God called you to it, he did not call you to it that way. He may very well have called you to it. It may be your subsidiary passion. You may absolutely supposed to be giving yourself to it. But if you cannot receive the peace of Christ, if you cannot relax, if you are full of anxiety or boredom or fear or anger in your relationship to God's church, then there is something there is a misconception through which Satan is squeezing you that you could be free of, and you just have to let it go. And if you are frustrated or burned out or bored or angry or whatever, the first step to us ever being what we're meant to be as a church is for us to get to a place where we can hear peace be with you and we can feel and sense the peace of Christ entirely. We have nothing to prove. We're entirely accepted in Christ. God doesn't owe us anything for all of, all of our obedience. And just because we're here doesn't mean God has to make our life good. Jesus is worth serving. He's done everything for us. We can add nothing to it. There's enormous pleasure of heart in it. And there are people around us that have actually been affected by the grace of God in ways that are incredible, that we are meant to enjoy and celebrate and encourage there are people who have been doing it for decades before us that we should be thanking. And there are resources among us that could encourage us and empower us dramatically that simply sit inches from us. That if we had a transformational relationship, if we actually talked to, loved, and touched, had a reflexive relationship with the person like right next to us, we would receive spiritual resources that I could never produce for you if I spent a hundred years building ministries. I believe that there is a, that everything we're meant to experience is actually a whole lot easier than we're making it. And I believe that if you and I receive that, Church can not only be more fruitful, it can be more fun, and it can be actually be easier, more peaceful, more enjoyable, funnier. It won't feel like we're a candle being burned at both ends. You'll be less angry about having to serve again in children's ministry. You'll want to give more of your money away because you won't want as much stuff because you've just kicked the worldliness bucket down the road. 
and all of the ordinary things in your life that right now feel like an imposition and the way of either the thing you want to conquer for Jesus or the amusement that you want to do to really feel alive will just all start to go away. And we will actually, in the most ordinary way, make a family of the most extraordinary disciples that this city has ever seen. Let's pray. Father, um, we want so much to be members of a church that is an institution that is full to the gills, thriving with people who love Jesus, where people come to know Jesus and are baptized and are growing and learning to obey everything that you commanded and finding their identity in Christ and being freed from the shackles of sin and feeling justified down to their toes— that the anxiety and the boredom and the fear of sin and pride are banished from their lives, that, that dry bones come to life. We, we all want to be part of that, Lord. And we want to let go of the religious, moralistic, striving way um, where we forget our own finitude, where we reject the ordinariness of real life, where we look past our neighbor to some abstraction of humanity, where we try to turn ourselves into a sub-government in order to somehow be over everything and where we give ourselves more mandates than you've really given us that even releases us from the personal mandates you've given us to love you and love our neighbor everywhere we walk in our lives. And I pray that tonight and tomorrow and as we walk forward as a church together, serving other people, that you would help us to become free and happy, and funny, and glad, and enjoying every person around us, weird as they are, because we believe the gospel, and it is unconfused by therapy or religion, and where we cherish you, Jesus, as you are a risen king. And when you say, peace be with you, we feel peace with us. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd come now as we go to sit and talk with each other. Come and be in every conversation. Fill our tongues with grace, our minds with clarity. I pray that you'd use our discussion time to encourage and strengthen all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.